I'm Sawyer Witted. And I'm Scott Tress. Welcome to The Stories That Make Us. This podcast uses the tool of the Enneagram to explore the beauty and complexity of humanity through stories, both real and fictional. Some episodes, we interview live guests about their stories through the lens of their types. Other episodes, we'll dissect fictional characters to discover their types and learn more about ourselves in the process. Because the reality is, it can be hard to see ourselves accurately. The eye can see everything but itself. Thanks for joining us, and let's get to it. Welcome to the show, guys. Scott, how you feeling? Feeling pretty good. How about yourself, sir? I'm fantastic. So we're actually going to be interviewing someone from type one today, which is the reformer. So Scott, before we dive into this interview, let's tell people about type ones. A little bit about the type one is their core fear is of being wrong, bad, corruptible, inappropriate, unredeemable, or evil. Oftentimes, they felt like they were a little overly criticized and only loved conditionally. And oftentimes, they had families who valued their high moral standards and codes over empathy and understanding. Regardless of the family structure, however, the consequences for making mistakes felt incredibly high. This led the child one to believe an unconscious message that it is not okay to make mistakes. And so they run from this fear of being wrong or bad or corruptible. And while they're running from this fear, they're running towards their desire. And that is to have integrity, to be good, virtuous, balanced, accurate, and right. All along the way, they're tripping over this core weakness, which is anger. And for the one, this is not a very outward anger. It's often manifests itself as a repressed resentment. So the one actually buries their anger and becomes more resentful towards the world and everyone in it who aren't as they should be. Additionally, they turn this anger inward at themselves, fueled by their inner critic. And so the fourth core motivation then is the core longing. And this is what the type one needs to hear to, to save them from the trap of their type. That is that you are good and you are good enough. So we're constantly talking about how to really understand the Enneagram, we need to have more than the head knowledge. We need to have the experiential knowledge. And the way that is done is through getting to know someone. And we're really excited to bring on this first guest, the start to this podcast, the first story that we'll be able to share with you guys to really get to know and understand what the Enneagram is and what it looks like in practice. So today I am actually interviewing Bobby. I had this wonderful conversation with one of my buddies. We have gotten really close over the last year. But as of this time last year, I didn't even know he existed. Bobby is known by his friends and family as a kind and likable guy. He is focused, athletic, and is often organizing something to bring people together. He is a leader and helps those around him become better. He does this through leading non-conventional physical fitness groups, organizing pickleball meetups, and by leading by example in all aspects of life. Bobby's wife, Brittany, plays a key role in helping bring a lot to his life, especially the social aspects and their heart for hospitality and bringing people together. As I said, Bobby and I have been friends for about seven months, but it feels like much longer as our lives have intersected quite a bit this past year over meals, drinks, pickleball matches, and Bobby's boot camp on Monday nights. <laughs> for work, Bobby is the director of coffee at Backyard Beans Coffee Company, and he is a type one on the Enneagram. Here's my interview with Bobby. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Bobby. Thanks for being on the show. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Hey, Sawyer. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. It's fun to interview anyone and hear anyone's story, but it's like an extra joy for me that you're one of my best friends and <laughs> I get to talk with you in this format. I'm very excited. As we talk about what makes a type a type, uh, we talk about four core motivations. So there's the core fear, which is what you're running from, the core desire, which you're running to, the core weakness, what you're constantly tripping over. And then there's the core longing, 
which I say is kind of like the secret sauce. It takes you out of that exhausting, never-ending journey and saves you from your fear, saves you from being controlled by your desires, saves you from being debilitated by your weakness. As we begin with the first core motivation for type ones, we talk about the fear. And the fear often develops in childhood and then solidifies as you're growing up. For the type one, that fear is of being wrong, of being bad, being corruptible or inappropriate, being irredeemable, or even being evil for some kids. And so I'm curious for you, as you were growing up, what was life like for you inside your head and inside your heart? So I grew up with two older sisters, and I'm the youngest. I remember from a young age wanting to be a good boy in all aspects, but also having this pretty stubborn side to me that I think my mom saw more than anybody else and my sisters as well. But when it came time to to go to school, I had very little interest in academics and learning. I was a very active boy, loved sports. My grandma said that I grew up with a ball in my hands. My dad prided himself on me being able to hit a wiffle ball at the age of two and a half years old. So I just loved running around and playing. I had a lot of energy. So when I jumped into school, my mom was a little worried about my lack of interest with learning. I was able to cover that up pretty quick because I realized, oh, if I'm a if I'm a good boy, if I follow all the rules, my teachers aren't going to be on my back and I'm not going to... I avoided the timeout chair in school, unlike my friends. And in a lot of ways, the teachers used me as a model student. And this actually kind of frustrated my mom a bit because I had a lot of academic struggles. Like I was really slow with um, name recognition and the things you need to learn before you learn how to read. So I was really slow to learn how to read. But like I said, I was able to cover that up through good behavior. And I don't know where exactly that came from, this drive to just be good and follow all the rules and be super kind and liked by everybody. But that was the role that I've played in school. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So a lot of type ones report feeling this way when they grow up. Young type ones often felt overly criticized and only loved conditionally. And so Oftentimes, their families either had really high moral standards or they valued systems and structures and morality over empathy and understanding. There can even be like a rigid family structure for some of them. But regardless of what the family structure is like, the consequences for little type ones from making mistakes felt incredibly high. And so they often learned this unconscious message, it is not okay to make mistakes. Does that resonate for you, with you? Yeah. So I've been trying to like place that because I feel like my parents weren't very rigid. They had strong morals for me to learn, but my mom was super nurturing, super loving, super mm-hmm. encouraging, provided tons of positive experiences with her growing up, especially being the youngest. Yeah. And then my dad, we played a lot of sports together. And I did love that because like I said earlier, my grandma even said I grew up with a ball in my hand and I just naturally loved that. And like people noticed from a young age that I was just super coordinated with my body. But I will say like, I looked up to my dad a ton for his hard work ethic and he played softball when I was young. Mm -hmm. So I'd go to his games and I thought it was neat that he was into ball as well. And we would play together a lot. And so I don't think my parents were super rigid in placing consequences on me. I think a lot of that came from myself and maybe a couple experiences I had. When I was 16 months old, I was known to bang my head on the hardwood floor when I would get frustrated and angry. I was at my grandparents' house and I was angry about something 
banging my head on the plush carpet and it wasn't good enough for me. So I went and found the hardwood floor to start banging my head on it. Mm. So like from a young age, I struggled with this anger. And that was a Mm. thread throughout my teenage years that kind of broke, but it's still something that's on the back burner, which we'll probably get into more later. But thinking about like where this all came from, I did think of one story. So I grew up in the church and I had a lot of great experiences in church, a lot of great Sunday school teachers, a lot of great friends. And I have a lot of good memories from church, but also I have one painful one. And it was in kindergarten. My Sunday school teacher wanted us to memorize the books of the Bible, just the title of each book. And then for some odd reason, as a kindergartner, we were supposed to go up in front of the whole church and recite what we had learned in Sunday school. And when that opportunity came, I was so freaked out that I threw up in the bathroom because of the anxiety Hmm. and I never completed it. So that was just this like tremendous pressure I put on myself to do this. And it was also like one of my big weaknesses was name recognition and like recalling names and not my strong suit when I was very good at many other things that, that I was into, but that was not at all one of the things. And especially like being in church, you feel like this is where I should be the best example to my classmates. So I don't know. That's one memory I have where that was exposed a bit, where I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. Yeah. It is so interesting. I'm just taken aback about the story about being 16 months old. Like, how does this little baby have this lens, right? This outlook through which if they're frustrated, there's like this self-condemnation almost. I mean, at that time, it seemed like almost like this self-punishment and then how old were you with the, the church story was when I was yeah. in kindergarten. So yeah, if you think about the Enneagram, like this is part nurture, part nature, right? So it's like, right. and when you're 16 months old, some of that could be from nurture, but it's probably mostly nature. Nature, totally. Oh yeah. And that's what I'm thinking too, as I'm thinking through this, another 16 year, 16 month old who would have all the same experiences as you and yet be a different type might respond completely differently. I could see a little seven like trying to make everyone laugh and like, entertain everyone to avoid the pain. I think it really speaks to this concept that a lot of ones relate to. And that's this concept of the inner critic. And it's so funny when I talk to ones about their inner critic, some ones have trouble identifying it as an inner critic because mm. they just think, well, that's just me. Like Those are just my thoughts. That's just me wanting to better myself and make things right and perfect myself and others. And I'm curious, do you find that you relate to an inner critic? Yeah. When I realize that other people don't have this same loud voice of the inner critic that I do, like talking with you and talking with my wife and getting to learn more about different personalities. Everybody has a little bit of an inner critic and that calling inside their mind to do better, to be better, to root out any weakness in their life, whether that be physically or mentally or spiritually. But yeah, it's definitely a ever present, like the volume doesn't go down very often. And so you have to find ways to temper it. I haven't named my inner critic. I know that's a practice a lot of ones do. But yeah, there's definitely things I found to help quiet it, but it is a driving force in my life. And Mm. a lot of the habits that I've formed and like disciplines I do or practices I engage in are pushed because of the inner inner critic. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that the inner critic is not bad. The inner critic doesn't have morality assigned to it. It just is. And you can use the inner critic in really helpful ways or really harmful ways, motivating you to work out and to set schedules and to do things that any human would benefit from doing. That's a great aspect of the inner critic. And mm-hmm. I just want to bless that part of you too. 
And at the same time, recognizing, obviously, the things that are easier to see, like the harmful ways that Mm. a critic berates. Yeah, I mean, there's part of me that doesn't know what life would be like or the Mm. purpose of life without that voice, like calling me to be something better. Because I just can't imagine life without that drive. Totally makes sense. But like you said, yeah, you can't let it destroy you. Or those you love. But yeah. (laughs) For ones when, for any type, when we start to feel fear, we learn from a young age to employ a defense mechanism so that we can say that fear stays away. I don't want to experience that fear. So I'm going to defend myself against it. And many times in our lives, this defense mechanism actually really helps us as children survive. But then as we become adults, it actually becomes something that's more harmful than it is helpful. For the type ones, your specific defense mechanism is reaction formation or forming your reactions. And so what that looks like for the one is that you'll hide your true feelings if you deem them bad, inappropriate, wrong. And instead, you'll present the opposite emotion because that feels more acceptable and good and right. What you end up sacrificing is authenticity of what you're actually feeling. But in a lot of ways, it helps you keep anger at bay and the emotions that you deem inappropriate as yeah repressed. An example could be if something really good or exciting happens to someone and you might feel envious of that. Instead of feeling and expressing any kind of envy or sadness, you then express, wow, that's really awesome. Like, Good for you. That's great. It's kind of like the opposite to try to be like, I can't let the bad negative feelings rear their head. They need to be shoved down. I can't feel envy towards other. That's wrong. How have you seen this defense mechanism in your life? Yeah, I just, I feel like I more so just shut down. If I'm angry at somebody, I'm not going to go above and beyond to like give them a different emotion I'm not feeling in order sure. to get something from them. I, yeah. It's actually not something I super resonate with. I think I'm more so like retreat and go into my own inner world and start thinking like the worst thoughts and I get super mm-hmm. introverted and emotional and depressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tend to more so just block shut down, them, block it out and shut down. Yeah. So what stops you from saying something to them or telling them they're being selfish? Yeah, if somebody's rubbing me the wrong way, I start to feel a little bit of anger towards them. Here's a story. So when I was in second grade, I got to go to a minor league baseball game and I was able to catch or my dad caught or we somehow got a foul ball. And so to me, this is like the coolest thing ever. I had a foul ball. I got to take it into show and tell at school and I was pretty quiet on the shyer side. And so when it was my turn to share, I probably wasn't coming across the most enthusiastic, the most assertive with my voice. And there were quite a few students that were not paying attention. They weren't listening. And the teacher wasn't doing anything. Hmm. The teacher was not reinforcing the rules that like you should listen to the kid who's sharing during show and tell. So I came home that day, like super angry told my mom about it. And I was frustrated at my teacher, but also frustrated at the whole experience of feeling like not listened to. But being the type that doesn't want to like share those feelings or those emotions to the teacher or to my classmates, I held it in and bottled it up. And so my mom's advice to me was like, all right, well, next time you want to share something in class, make sure you speak up with a loud, assertive voice so that everybody can hear you. And so my response to her was like, so like, all right, everybody shut up. <laughs> Something like that. That was what I was feeling inside as a young kid. Yeah. yeah. So everybody shut up. You're right. being so rude. If mm. I have interactions like that today, I, like I tended more so to shut down 
Sure. And instead of engaging and stirring up conflict, I will defer to just trying to flee from the situation to not engage with that, but also to then to not show like these negative emotions and these negative feelings sure. that I'm feeling like this is wrong or this is hurtful. I also, I think for a one, people see me and people see ones as people who are very calm, stoic, easygoing, even keel, same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, mm -hmm. know what you're going to expect from them. But the reality is ones have a pretty active emotional life. We feel a lot in our inner world. I don't display that on the outside, mainly out of fear of putting out the ugliness or stirring up sure. conflict, sure. which is probably where we're not, maybe not going to get into it, but I'm most likely have a nine wing, sure, which would totally. explain that a lot. Yeah. You just taught me something about ones. You just helped me better understand reaction formation in its truest sense. If I think about what it means to form a reaction, you don't need to form a reaction to something if it's just your natural reaction. But if your natural reaction is inappropriate or wrong or in your mind shouldn't be shared, a reaction to be formed could be shutting down and choosing mm -hmm. to be thin-lipped and controlled and not say anything. I've heard someone's report that they then will go the extra mile and share the opposite emotion. But I think it's very true that other type ones will just control the negative from leaking out. And mm -hmm. that makes so much sense too, because ones are the most self-controlled Enneagram type. You guys have a huge capacity for self-control, which is not good or bad. It just is. <laughs> uh, and it can be really good or it can be really harmful. Yeah. My sister's always told me, she's like, you're so disciplined, Bobby. <laughs> I guess I am. Like it comes yeah. naturally. I want to transition a little bit into the second core motivation, and that's the core desire. As you're running from the core fear and using your defense mechanism to defend against that fear from actualizing in your life, you run towards this core desire. And for the type one, that's having integrity, being good, virtuous, balanced, accurate, right? You want to be good, you want to have integrity, and you want to be responsible, and you want to be seen that way. But believing that you can never truly be sure that, like, how can I truly be sure that I am good, that I am, that I am okay, you focus your attention often on perfecting things instead. Do you find yourself thinking about this? Oh, yeah, for sure. It definitely consumes a lot of my extracurricular time, my free time, my free space is like finding problems and looking for solutions, solutions that I can like put into action. For Like lately in the past few years, like a few ways that's manifested itself has been in like the health and fitness of my life and also trying to find ways to deal with anxiety. I realized like five to seven years ago that anxiety was actually a problem in my life. I'm also the type that doesn't really like to find help from other people. I like to find the solutions myself. <laughs> so through reading, through research, through stumbling upon people with helpful advice and putting it into practice, see if it works or not. I've found a number of rabbit holes to go down to find healing. But, yeah. and then also in like, how do you become stronger? How do you increase your endurance? How do I like overcome these physical ailments I have from all the years of snowboarding and skateboarding that I've done? Like, how do I fix these issues that my body feels? So I find it fascinating and interesting to learn about the body, to learn about the mind and to find ways yeah. to make improvements. I imagine an example of that being taken to the extreme, maybe someone feeling like their body's never quite strong enough because there's always going to be other people out there who are stronger than you. And there's always more progress that you can make. And so I imagine a one who is so dissatisfied with the way that they are, 
that like this never ending perfecting happens. Yeah, it can definitely go down a dark path, especially with um, food, like eating. I haven't gone down that path of an eating disorder. Sure. But I have gone on many different diets, not necessarily cleanses, sure. but maybe like challenges. Let's do sure. a month of no sugar, no alcohol, no grains, things like that. And that's been like present in my life for quite a while. Yeah. So I'm thinking about our culture, especially our American culture, assigns morality to food. Like this food's good and this food's bad. Mm, Salad, yeah. good. Candy, bad. I know you know this because you and I have had conversations about this. The reality is, no, it's everything in moderation. But beyond food, do you find yourself assigning moral labels to things that are neither good nor bad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. That's definitely something I can fall into. I'm pretty judgmental for myself. I have high standards and I'm also susceptible to wanting to be part of a cause. I recognize this looking back on my like early college years and just really changing as a person. You led this off as ones want to earn their worth from others. So I definitely fell into this trap of like, all right, I want my life to have purpose. I want it to have meaning. But I find like the biggest causes to be a part of, and I got to jump into them and learn as much as I can about these causes and teach other people about how big of a problem this is hmm. and make sure that everybody's on board to help eradicate sex slavery, for instance, or sure. there were a number of causes. And yeah. I turned into like this hippie I grew my beard long and my hair long and Tom's shoes was huge in this time. Oh yeah. And so I had Tom's, but I only had one pair of Tom's. Like those things got old and ratty because <laughs> if I bought a new pair of Tom's, then I'm buying into consumerism and like, oh, I don't want to be part of consumerism. Sure. And also my jeans, like they had patches on them because I don't want new jeans. Cause like, hmm. I don't want to be part of that system perpetuating consumerism. So that was a very outward. All right. Let me make sure that my peers know that I'm about these issues and I mm. care about the good things. Yeah. I care about making this world a better place. But at the same time, I was holding on to anger and frustration and, yeah. and envy and all these things being part of the cause, but not necessarily yeah. changing in my inner heart. I can still carry that now. Like in my life, I have to be careful that I'm not just like seeing certain foods as good and other foods as bad or right. certain exercise is good, other exercise is bad, or everybody's going to live their life differently and not all going to be into the same things. So having grace for myself, but also for other people and how they decide to live their life. Yeah. It's easy to follow rules and stay in line and be responsible and have integrity when things are black and white, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you just go towards the good and stay away from the bad. But the reality is that we live in a world of nuance. We live in a world of gray. I think that can be both a freeing concept for ones and like a scary concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. We like to live in the idealistic world, not grounded in the nuances and messiness of the world. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense, man. Thanks for sharing that. So this world is gray and the one wants it to be black and white. And so this often ends up activating their core weakness, which is the third core motivation of the type. And for the one that is anger. And this energy is often expressed as a repressed resentment because you're not going to find a lot of ones who are outwardly really angry. You might see that aspects of that at times in their lives, but people see you and experience you as steady Eddie. The reason we experience you as a steady Eddie is because your self-control of shoving this anger down and this resentment. And it's really this resentment towards yourself, towards your relationships and towards the world for not being as it should be. 
so often of the time when a one expresses their feelings or their criticisms or just noticing the wrongs and imperfections in the world, it can come off as very judgmental or critical. But really what's happening for the one is that you guys have this amazing eye for seeing things as it should be. It's actually quite a gift and it's an amazing gift that you guys have to see things as they should be. But we often don't realize or take the extra step to get to know what's going on underneath for the type one. The core weakness of anger is definitely something I resonate with. As I mentioned, it's like it's been present in my life for quite a while, even like a super young age. It was something that I tried probably to hide from my dad the most. For some reason, I felt a little bit more okay showing that to my mom occasionally. But my dad was the one I really looked up to for his work ethic. There was a time when I was super young when my anger came out and I kicked the pantry and damaged the pantry door. It was like one of those accordion doors. And so my mom made me wait till dad got home, tell my dad what I did. So my dad gently gets his toolbox, starts fixing the door. And I went and got my toolbox and sat next to him to try to help him fix it. But for that anger to be exposed to my dad was really rough. I had a pretty stable upbringing up until I was 12. When I was 12, September 11th happened. And not only did that like turn our world upside down, it was a number of other things. So like my dad was in between jobs at the time and he then went on a few new job opportunities that took him away out of state and away from the family for a number of years. And some serious mental health struggles hit my family. And so at this like key time of my life as a young man, things were like flipped upside down. My dad, who was like my main role model, was away trying to make money for the family because we were struggling financially. I became like the man of the house at a young age and got to take on a lot of responsibility. And my mom said I did a great job with that without being asked. Did all the chores, all the things that my dad would do. But all that kind of boiled up, like slow simmer of just like frustration and anger of realizing that life is not what it should be. And my family's going through a lot of hard times. And yeah. I'm this like quiet peacemaker in the family who's not going to, yeah, and I'm not going to put the spotlight on me with any problems that I might be having mm-hmm. because there were bigger problems to be worried about. So then in, in high school is when things just came to a head mm-hmm. and things started to explode out of my life, out of my emotions, and came out in some really ugly ways that are really shameful to remember and think about. And once again, it was also one of those things that my dad was the one I really didn't want to show that to. Sure. But it did happen eventually. And that's when, yeah, like hitting rock bottom as like a young, angsty teenager Mm. coming face Mm. to face with, I have this really dark shadow that is lurking Mm. underneath the surface that's Mm. trying to destroy my life if I don't figure out how to deal with it. So Mm. yeah, through my life in high school with some good connections at church and a really caring youth pastor and a family that was praying for me and sisters that loved me um, came through that and really turned into like a much more peaceful person who could deal with that more. But yeah, over the years, I would say now having my wife, who's a really good listener, incredible listener, 
Like I can't fool her. If there's something simmering under the surface, mm-hmm. she's going to notice that something's wrong and ask mm-hmm. me about it and give me the space to slowly but surely talk about it. So communication is really key to express the feelings, to then process them and to yes. be able to see them more clear-headedly when they're yes. out in the open like that. Yeah. I love that. If you just repress that and repress it and repress it, it's going to come out. Like it, it can't constantly be repressed without exploding in some place. Mm. I think it's cool to see you now having grown through that and come to a place where you do experience serenity more. And part of your transformation story was to have a space where you did end up letting all that anger out and you were loved through it. You let all that inappropriateness, quote unquote, out, all that quote unquote badness out and you were still loved in the midst of it and through it. Yeah, that's totally true. I had a family that was right there loving me, not judging me, not mm-hmm. coming down harsh on me, yeah. even though they should have and they could have. And I'm, sure. I know they did to a certain extent for some of the things I did, but they were gently, patiently there yeah. with open arms and yeah. open ears to listen. For all types, like every human, we have three primary muscles, so to speak, that we work from. We talk about our Head muscle, which is our IQ, our intelligence, logic, analytical processing. We talk about our heart muscle, which is EQ, emotional connection, uh, emotions, feelings about things. And then we've got our gut or body intelligence, which is GQ. And that's like intuition, that's movement, that's action. And so for ones, you guys are in the movement action triad, which is not surprising. And so you guys are very like action focused, constantly doing your second access center is your feelings in your heart. And so you have a lot of feelings. You said it earlier, you have a really rich emotional life inside. And then the one that's repressed, the one that ones tend to struggle with is actually connecting to their head center and actually thinking about things logically. You get stuck in this unproductive thinking in your head that is not actually solving the problems in the way that is helpful. Rather, it's relying too much on your heart and your... It's relying too much on your emotions and then moving out and acting from your emotions and such. So yeah, how does that resonate with you? Yeah, no, that, that resonates a lot. I struggle sometimes to lean into that, the logic. I think sometimes people who are super logical just strike me as like cold and maybe even like just not understanding of people. Yeah, I have this sensitive part of me that really sees people for who they are and like wants to be sensitive to make sure people are included and cared for. That's been throughout my life. Yeah, my mom said that in school, I was known as like always helping people tie their shoes. And just like you said, like moving from the gut, like moving out and doing things. And I also hated school because I would complain that it my tailbone would hurt because I was sitting all day. I was I always like to be doing something beyond the move. Yeah, it makes sense. So many times when a one feels angry, at someone or resentful towards someone or themselves, particularly towards themselves, when that inner critic, when the volume is just turned up really high and you're just attacking yourself, do you recognize that as not actually logical, but rather an emotional response to maybe a should, the battle of should and should not, of Mm -hmm. like, oh, I should have said this in that situation. I should have done this, or I should have done, next time I'm going to do this, or I need to do this, or I should do that, I shouldn't do this. Do you recognize that as actually coming from a place more so of the heart and emotions rather than logical, analytical thinking? Yeah, I think a lot of people have helped point that out to me. 
being around like good and trusted friends, they'll say things to me that's, oh, yeah, I didn't even know I'd do that. So things like grunting or just like murmurs of frustration or like statements like, ah, that was stupid or condemning myself for things I do. And that is like those emotions like leaking out. Those are things I don't really want people to see that I'm feeling or experiencing because I know it's not like, I do know it's not logical when I face reality. Like I shouldn't be that hard on myself, but the inner feelings well up so much that they take over. Yes. The action and feeling, they just work together. And it's like the logical thinking just gets shoved in a filing cabinet. In conversations with you, as I've gotten to know you this past year, we've hung out a lot. You've pointed out to me that I use the word should a lot. I should do this, or I should have done that, or... You should all over yourself. Yes. And reframing that, like, it's good that I am always thinking of ways to improve and how to get better, like having more grace for myself. And just like you said, with grace, we acknowledge that this way of working, it doesn't work right? And you need a new path. It doesn't work for you to experience freedom and grace and relationship in the way that you're intended to. And so the type one needs a new path. And that's where this core longing comes in. This is the fourth core motivation. This is the message that your body needs to receive, your head needs to hear and believe, your heart needs to feel and receive, and your spirit needs. And for you as a type one, that message is you are good and you are good enough. What does this message do for you? What comes up for you when you hear this message? I feel this message when I'm with like trusted friends and people that I really enjoy their company with. And over years of time and friendship with these people, like I know deep in my heart that these people appreciate me for who I am, not necessarily just what I bring to the table, but that's an area where I deep down know and understand that I am somebody that is good enough and is an appreciated person in community with others. But then there's other times, like I hear that message and like words of affirmation like that, if I try to recite it to myself, can sometimes feel a little like fluffy. Like these are just words I'm like trying to say. I know it's the message I'm supposed to hear, but like I said earlier, it's hard for me to imagine life without this push to do better, to improve, to always be pushing forward, to always be finding things to root out. So yeah, I'm growing in that, but also I would almost frame it maybe a little bit different than please just these messages of me telling myself I'm good enough that to me, sometimes that just feels a little empty. I think like the message I, that I need is not just that I'm good enough, but that I'm like chosen, that I have a purpose. That seems to be the message that really helps me find serenity and so find, yeah. find peace. Those things feel so connected to me the sentence of, I I need to feel like I have a purpose, that there's a purpose that I'm here, and the, you are good and you are good enough. Because I think for so many ones, like we were talking about this fixation, they get fixated on perfecting themselves as if it's once I'm perfect, then things will be okay. And maybe then I can do what I want to do or accomplish what I need to accomplish or something. Or then I'll just be acceptable enough. The reality is that I think that's what that message, you are good and you are good enough, encompasses. Where you are, you don't need anything else to be the blessing that you are to other people. Like just you showing up and just being here is enough. Yeah. Along those lines, I have noticed there's been times in my life where I've been a little frozen from going into action because I spent so much time like prepping or preparing or like trying to get everything just right before I, because I I fear like making a mistake. Yes. That's a big 
theme of my oneness. Yeah. Because I'm afraid of making a mistake, I might not walk out into action totally. and risking it. So there are a couple of things that Scott and I are recommending for everyone of each type. We don't want to leave you with just, hey, here are all the pitfalls and hard things about the type. We want to talk about ways forward as well. And so one of the practices we recommend is breath prayers. And so this is actually just taking a deep breath in. And then as you breathe out, you breathe out a message. And for the ones we recommend that you try breathing out, I am good. I am purposeful. I am justified. I am loved. And then the other thing that we would say is also speaking affirmations. And so it's really powerful as we look in the mirror and see ourselves and hear ourselves speaking these words. And so for the ones, it's a good thing for them to affirm themselves by saying, I am good and I am enough apart from how I better or perfect myself and others. So you're not good and you're not enough for people because you bring all the wonderful gifts that you do bring of improvement and reforming, but you're good and enough just because. Do you resonate with that? Yeah, for sure. I haven't put that into practice exactly, but I have done different like breathing techniques that kind of take me out of the mental loop of Hmm. everything that needs done. And like you said earlier, like it's not this like logical, intellectual, productive thinking. Sometimes it's just a loop of negative thought. Right. So I have found different breathing techniques have helped. I wonder what it would be like to try practicing breathing out some of those things too. See how that resonates. As we get ready to wrap up this, our time together here, Bobby, I want to paint a picture for you. This is something where we remember our beauty because with all of the unknown and the ugly and the hard, there's a lot of beauty and radiance. And so I paint this picture of a tree. As the ones believe this message that you are good and you are good enough, uh, that is the roots and the trunk of the tree. You're good enough you have purpose, you're here for a reason. That is your whole roots and trunk. And then that then gives birth to these branches, these very strong branches. And for the ones, that's your virtue. And that's long suffering. And that's not being quick to criticize or quick to judge, but rather sitting, being, and bearing with others. It's patience. They are able to be patient because they trust that God who orchestrates everything will work things out in his own timing. And then as those strong branches are growing, they then bear fruit. And so the branches of long suffering bears the fruit of grace. And this is the lavish, abundant gift given to the one that they don't deserve, but that's given to them anyway. It's a free gift that they can then overflow and give to others. Well, this has been awesome, Bobby. You are a wonderful person and it has been such a joy to spend this time with you. So thanks for being here, man. And thanks for sharing so vulnerably. Thanks a lot, Sor. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. Bobby is such a gem of a man, and I'm so grateful that he came on the pod to share his heart with you guys today. I hope that what he said resonates with those of you who are type ones. And for those of you that are not, well, maybe you'll do us a favor and share this podcast with the type ones in your life or any of the people in your life who know and love type ones. You may be wondering about the song that's playing in the background right now. And so I wanted to give you a quick heads up about what that is. That is actually a piece that I self-composed and produced called One from my album, Ennea Songs. I composed this nine song album of Enneagram songs that tell the story from each type's perspective and in a style of music that, I think, fits each type really well. 
It is out anywhere you listen to music. So check those out. I poured so much of my time, my heart, and my energy into those songs, and I hope that they bless you. Thanks again for listening today. It would be super cool of you if you could rate us and share this episode. Always remember, we need a tool like the Enneagram to grow in self-awareness because what you don't own owns you. Be well, my friends. Stay.